Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's episode of the Fraudology Podcast. I'm Carice Hendrick. On this week's episode, I'm going to share a little bit of news about Amazon and some things that they're doing that has caught a lot of industry attention recently, as well as share with you a question I received from a listener that I believe will be quite topical for a lot of you in retail. It stems around refund fraud, which I have been talking about a lot in the last year and a half, at least it seems like it, at conferences, on webinars, in my daily life with consulting clients all around. Uh, But this question is, you know, around a mystery that they have at their warehouse, and I think I can help them solve it. So that is what you have to look forward to on today's episode. I wanted to start out by thanking everyone who has provided such great feedback on the most recent episodes. Um, of season two. It really helps and is encouraging to keep me motivated, especially as I do two episodes a week. Today was a little bit tough. I woke up with a pretty bad migraine. And so after I had a couple client calls, I just had to turn off the lights and and lay down for a while. And and thankfully, it's pretty much gone away. So I apologize if this is being posted a little bit late. I have the best producer in the world. And I'm not just saying that because he's editing this for me pretty late, but I know he'll get it out as soon as he can. So thanks, you guys, for everything. I think uh, especially I've heard so many great things about the Robbie Perry part one and part two episodes. Anytime I can help share new perspectives to this audience around fraud fighting, around e-commerce, around payments, I think it's really important and just helps us all do our job better when we learn from other perspectives. So that I'm just thrilled that has been popular and I had a feeling it would be, especially uh, the parts around chargebacks. I got to actually preview a new product today that actually was very aligned with the tips that Robbie used or Robbie provided on the on this past uh, Tuesday's episode. So it's always fun when those kind of things align. And it's great that I get to know what's coming out in the industry before press releases and things like that. Speaking of press releases, actually, before I forget, this is officially Fraud Awareness Week. I have been joking with a few people in fraud, like, are you aware of fraud during the the holiday season? It's kind of funny. But actually, it's sponsored by ACFE, which is the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. And if you're not familiar with them, they're primarily focused, at least they started out being focused on forensic accounting and embezzlement, kind of internal fraud, very important work and some people that I really admire admire on that side of the fence. But it is also one of the only or is the only certification specific to fraud right now. And so there are a lot of people in e-commerce that also get that certification. But there were some graphics being thrown around on social media this week from the ACFE about fraud and fraudsters specifically giving background. And and one merchant sent it to me and was like, this doesn't feel right. And I said, that's because it's not for us. It's, you know, talking about people who commit 
internal fraud, like embezzlement or, you know, moving, cooking the books and, and that kind of thing. So when they're talking about personas of fraudsters and qualities of fraudsters, it's going to look different than the fraudsters that you often encounter in e-commerce. But being aware of any kind of fraud is really important at any time, especially for people who aren't in this industry and live and breathe it all the time. So I was very honored to be asked to partner up with TikTok in a press release in their Fraud Awareness Week. I think we're going to get to talk to someone on the fraud side of TikTok pretty soon, which will be exciting as well. I, I really appreciate and admire their commitment to publicly being, you know, providing education and information about fraud. That's something that some social media platforms have steered away from and tried to just not acknowledge. And so I think it's really great that they're trying to be proactive around it. It also received quite the eye roll from my 17-year-old that TikTok asked me uh, to be involved in something with them. So that was extra fun for me. You know, when you are the parent of a teenager, sometimes you get some bonus points for yourself when you embarrass them or cause them to eye roll because otherwise it could you know, hurt your feelings. So I just take it as a compliment that I'm doing my job right. So anyway, back to, you know, I wanted to also back to talking about interviews and I'm sorry, I'm kind of bouncing around today. I still have a bit of a shadow headache. So I'm trying not to use that as an excuse, but I'm going to try to stay pretty focused. But I just looked down at my notes and realized that there was one other thing I was going to say about interviews in general. As I go forward with this two episode a week format, one episode will be an interview and the other will be like this episode, some topical industry news, what's going on, conversations I'm having with companies as well as answering questions, just things like that in a fairly short, compact episode, 20 to 30 minutes. And on the interview side, I'm starting to schedule interviews out for the next few months and especially love to talk to merchants and other fraud practitioners, if you are a fraud fighter in finance, fintech, crypto, all different verticals within e-commerce, whether it's retail, gaming, ticketing, travel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'd love to have conversations with you on the podcast. And I know not everyone is able to speak on the record, but I am willing to play ball with communications teams if that means providing questions in advance, recordings in advance, having off-limit topics, all of that. But really, it's just about having a conversation about fraud fighting that can be helpful to the industry. And if you don't know what you would talk about or you don't think you have anything to talk about, I actually think that I have a special superpower to be able to identify things that you may know or that you've experienced that others can learn from. This is something I've been doing for the last nine years of my career in creating conference content as well as you know, regional events and other types of event content. So I think within a quick 20-minute conversation, we could find the right topic for you that would be super fascinating to our listeners, as well as be a great experience for you, something to add to your resume, to add to your LinkedIn, to share with your company that you know, you're being recognized as a thought leader in the space. So I just wanted to throw that out there. If you're interested, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn or via email. We'll be having a more formal process soon, but just for now, I wanted to kind of plant that seed for you. I wanted to also highlight, if you're fairly new to listening to this podcast, I highly recommend that you go back to some of the episodes from season one in 2020 and earlier in 2021. 
just some of the ones that are popular that I hear about often and that I know based on the analytics are very popular uh, include my conversation with Matt Vega, who was at Instacart at the time. And now he's doing some really unique consulting projects for some really interesting companies. I just don't know how public it is. So I'll leave that there. Jacqueline Hart, who was at Patreon at the time talking about trust and safety. I've recently heard a lot of great things about uh, that episode. It just kind of comes up sometimes. I'm like, oh yeah, we did that like a year ago. She's now at Apple doing amazing things there. Another great person I spoke to was Alexander Hall, who's a former fraudster and now consultant in the space. And Monica Sharp, who is responsible for running the product team for Apple's fraud engine for over a decade. Those are just some of the best of one of the most favorite episodes. But there's a lot of great conversations with Frank McKenna, with Kelly Paxton, like different people that are in different areas of fraud and just fascinating conversations. So highlighting all of those today, those are kind of my housekeeping notes, so to speak. So I will dive into the biggest news I've seen this week, which involves Amazon. Though not directly related to fraud, payments is a close cousin to fraud and often goes hand in hand within a merchant organization. Uh, and it's actually where my roots uh, are. So I think if, you know, anyone has heard how I got into fraud, I actually started out on the payment processing side. So I can speak payments and interchange pretty fluently and do fairly often within conversations with clients, because again, they really do go hand in hand. And, and it's important. I think there are several companies, especially mid to large companies and small companies as well, that sometimes take payments for granted and don't understand that there are things that merchants can do to improve authorizations, aka sales, as well as reduce your fees. If that's something you'd want me to go into as far as the difference between interchange and discount rate and all of that, I feel like I have in a previous episode, but if not, it may have just been something I was talking about with a client or on a webinar or who knows. But if that's something you'd be interested in, please let me know because I can really nerd out on that. But uh, here's what the headline said today, and this is something that I literally woke up to on LinkedIn and saw about 10 people post it within an hour. So here's one headline. Amazon to stop accepting Visa credit cards issued in the UK, citing high fees. Pretty big headline. So just a reminder of what interchange is, that's the fee that's charged by the card brand as well as the card issuer. They split that up on the back end. Interchange fees can't be negotiated, but they can be optimized in some ways, not all of them. So they vary. There's a bazillion interchange rates and, and codes, maybe not a bazillion, but pretty close. And often it is a percentage plus a per transaction fee. And they can vary based on the card type, based on the country that the card is issued in, based on the information that is provided throughout the payment authorization string. So sometimes you, know, you can't really say, hey, we're not going to accept this particular bin of Visa or MasterCard because their rewards points and they're going to be higher or anything like that. But you can do things like make sure that you're sending as much information as you can through the payment string like address verification. If you accept a high amount of business credit cards, you can ask for track two data to be applied or how to do that within your gateway or PSP. I'm getting down a rabbit hole. So I just wanted to kind of remind everyone what that is and it's charged at the time that the payment is processed. Because of Brexit, the EU cap on interchange fees no longer applies in the UK. 
allowing the card networks to raise their fees. And they did this year. Earlier this year, Visa increased their UK interchange rates and MasterCard did for UK to EU fees. UK, so Amazon started sending out emails, I believe this week, to some of their customers that use, that have Visa credit cards issued in the UK. So credit cards from the UK as their main payment method. And they advise that they can still use a debit card issued in the UK by Visa. They can still use MasterCard right now, as well as Amex. But it sounds like they're going to be blocking that set of bins from the UK because the prices are so high. I wanted to read a little bit of what Visa and MasterCard said because I think it it demonstrates just this larger picture of the push-pull between card brands and merchants, especially large merchants that have quite a bit of say and negotiating power because they're in a pretty big position. They, I know for a fact that a goal of issuers when it comes to Amazon and other very large companies is to be top of wallet. So for these UK issued banks or issuers, they're not going to be happy that they can't be top of wallet and be the the chosen card for their consumers, for their cardholders with Amazon. So Visa said UK shoppers can use their Visa debit card and credit cards at Amazon UK today and throughout the holiday season. They also said they're very disappointed that Amazon is threatening to restrict customer choice in the future. We have a longstanding relationship with Amazon and we continue to work toward a resolution so our cardholders can use their preferred Visa credit cards at Amazon UK without Amazon-imposed restrictions come January 2020. Amazon then blasted Visa for its high card charges. I'm reading this from the CNBC article, so blasted is their turn. The cost of accepting card payments continues to be an obstacle for businesses striving to provide the best prices for customers, a spokesperson said for the company, or for the company said. These costs should be going down over time with technological advancements, but instead they continue to stay high or even rise. The article goes on to say that this move could be viewed as a way for Amazon to get some bargaining power over Visa to lower its fees. I I would agree with that. I am curious to know if that's going to continue or if this was a bargaining chip for Amazon in saying, okay, well, we've gotten to what we think is, you know, a place where we can't negotiate anymore. So we're going to make this announcement and now you know, have people kind of hopefully put some consumer pressure on the card brands, etc. It'll be interesting to see if they continue with it. But, you know, I have to say that Amazon has had a robust team focused on payment acceptance almost since their inception. I've known several of the members through over the years. So I'm going to be careful not to share anything that has been confided in me. But I think it's, it is well known that they're one of several of the biggest e-commerce companies in the world that prioritize, you know, fee optimization as well as payment acceptance optimization. And they work hard to have the lowest fees possible for their business. They've really found that optimizing the authorization rate and working on that by bin by, and there's so many different ways that can be done as well as by ensuring that they have the lowest fees and pricing is really important for their business. Other companies that have really great payments teams include Netflix, Google, Apple, Uber, I'm trying to, Spotify. <laughs> I can name off a lot, but those are just a few that come to mind 
And it's weird because I'm like thinking of specific people and then turning it into the company they work for. Because that was just off the top of my head. But I think it's a great thing. I think it's important for merchants to be aware of this because it definitely can add up. These pennies turn into very quickly. And so this could benefit other retailers accepting payments in the UK. It's possible, depending on the size of business that Visa credit cards have in the UK, that this could possibly reduce interchange in some way. They could also just reduce interchange for specific merchant category codes because interchange is also impacted by the type of merchant you are. Whether you're a retailer, you're gaming, there's a lot of different merchant category codes and that also impacts your interchange rate. Especially with early, the other thing I thought was kind of interesting is earlier in the last few weeks, maybe months, Amazon has announced that they're adding uh, more alternative payment methods, like a, a partnership with Venmo, as well as one with uh, Buy Now, Pay Later, Provider, Affirm. So this is something that I think has been talked about at conferences for the last 12 or 13 years. But this move for to towards alternative payments and away from credit cards can be some is something that a lot of merchants want because they see these alternative payment methods as being cheaper as well as a little bit more technologically advanced and consumer friendly. And especially with Gen Z, we're seeing buy now, pay later take on a really big role beyond, you know, credit cards. So anyway, I found this really fascinating and wanted to make sure that I shared that with you guys. And would be, uh, I think that it's something also that if you are accepting payments in the UK and you, and if you haven't talked to your payment service provider, your PSP yet, the one that provides payments from the UK, definitely check in on your interchange and see if there's anything you can do to optimize that as well, because it sounds like it's quite high. I was trying to look for the exact rate, but ran out of time, but it's something that you can definitely check with your PSP and or payment processor on. So I'm going to move on to a question I received from a listener. It was actually someone that saw me uh, speak at the Riskified Summit a few weeks ago. And so it's related to refund fraud. That's what I spoke on there. And that's what I have been talking about a lot lately because I feel like it's really important for people to understand that this is not just a, a cost of doing business. This is a coordinated, systemized, intentional attack method, which does mean that when things are coordinated and systemized and intentional, that there are signals that you can identify to try to prevent as well as recover lost funds due to this. So I'm not going to go into all of the details. This is a specific type of refund fraud that has been impacting retailers a lot, especially in the last six months and especially for high dollar transactions. So I'm going to start with their question and then I will go into an answer and I'll try to keep it kind of concise. Here's the question. I have some sort of weird refund fraud, I think, going on. And wanted to know if you heard of anything similar. We have some high value orders placed and most are first time customers. Then they do a return on the web, but all of them have been sending back nothing and requesting a refund via email or chat ASAP. So as soon as possible, as they show the package returned to us already, the tracking number shows return to them. All of them have been returning five by seven bubble mailer packages that wouldn't hold the product they ordered. Wondering if you heard anything like this or think it might be a spin on the refund for hire going around. Thanks. 
Well, they're definitely right. It is a spin on refund for hire as well as DIY refund fraud tips that are going on all over the web. It's not even, I mean, it's not really even on the dark web anymore. It's in private messaging apps like Telegram and Discord and WhatsApp and some social media like Reddit. And I've seen some on Instagram all over the place. They're just sharing information. And, you know, somebody asked me as well at this event, and I think I might have mentioned it earlier, but on another episode, but someone asked me what the demographic was of refund fraudsters. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about it before, but I think that it really has to do with Gen Z. It's this gaming culture, this gaming the system, figuring things out. They've primarily grown up with technology and they're all about, you know, hacking in quotation marks or, you know, getting something for free or getting a promo code or, you know, just gaming the system in various ways. And so that's really what I see is the core demographic. There's obviously other people who are doing this to provide for their families or, you know, all kinds of things. And there's various levels of success and it's a lot. It's hard to it's hard to talk about all of it without some kind of visual aid to kind of map it out. But what this merchant's talking about is what these refund fraudsters call FTID. It stands for fake tracking identification. And first of all, it's not it that name is false for what it actually is, but I will try to summarize it. There are several different methods of it, but I'll speak to this particular method for sure. So when I'm talking about refund fraud overall, I kind of put them into two buckets. One of them is all about social engineering on the upfront. It's talking to customer service via chat, via phone, via email, claiming things like the product wasn't received or I got an empty box or I ordered three items and the two cheaper items came, but the most expensive item that's, you know, a laptop or other expensive electronics or sneakers or whatever the large dollar items are, that one isn't in the box. Those types of claims are going to be kind of more obvious refund fraud. Certainly not easy to fix on a large scale for big companies, but it's something that, you know, because honestly, there's a lot of legitimacy in packages not arriving, et cetera, especially since COVID for a variety of reasons. The other bucket, so to speak, that I put refund fraud in is, and all of these are post-transaction, obviously, but the other bucket is manipulating and exploiting the warehouse. And that's where I would put fake TIDs in. Uh, others, th there's a couple of other methods with the warehouse, but this is really the key one. And that is their goal is to have the tracking number through the carrier show that the item was received at the warehouse, even though they're not returning the item that they originally ordered from your website. There are various ways to do that in the way that this merchant was asking about. They, this is one of the most common, and this is to print out the tracking label, put it on a you know small mailer, anything really. Sometimes they're advised to put stickers that make it seem like it's an advertisement because they just want the warehouse to throw the um, envelope away. All they want is for the tracking number to look like it was sent to the warehouse. That's their number one goal. Other things they can they've done and and 
do on a regular basis if they know that the merchant's looking at the return weight on the tracking number back. They will fill it with dry ice. And then by the time the merchant or the warehouse is opening up the return, they might have a soggy box, they might have an empty box, and then they're throwing it away. One of the challenges of this type of refund fraud, manipulating and exploiting the warehouse, is that most order management systems for e-commerce are not connected to the tracking number. So the tracking number is stored within a customer's account. So when the customer service agent looks up their account, they can see the tracking number. Then they can click on the hyperlink and go out to the shipping carrier and find out if the tracking number was delivered or not. But they, but the warehouse often can't look up the track, put the tracking number into their order management system to find out who the customer is. And that's because most carriers, their tracking numbers refresh or retire after 90 days. So, I mean, it could in theory, if you put in a tracking number, you could pull up a few different customers. The likelihood of that would be challenging, but that's just the way order management systems are set up. So you can look up, you know, if the customer has their account number or they have their tracking number, you can look that up on the customer service site. But the warehouse doesn't, most often, doesn't have a way to look up the customer just by the tracking number. And when these refund fraudsters are sending back these packages to the warehouse, they're ensuring that there's no personal information on that tracking number. So in the from category, it's completely empty or it's wrong information. So that all the warehouse has to go on is the tracking number. There are various tips and tricks that I have for clients. I had the refund uh, fraud workshop a few months ago with literally some of the biggest companies in the world in there. And one of them so sweetly wrote me a note and said, although I'm an atheist, you there's no denying that you're doing God's work with this workshop, which was very kind. And I do plan to offer it again when there's more demand. And I offer it now for private companies as well. The solutions for this really vary based on the company, but I think knowing exactly what they're doing is the first step. I think it's important for warehouses to be paying attention to that to keep the items some merchants are just keeping an exception list so having their warehouse create a spreadsheet and just put tracking numbers in there maybe on a google doc as simple as that is and then having customer search that google doc for the tracking number for their customer before issuing a refund that's one quick way there's a lot of other process improvement and, and deeper and more efficient ways that can be done, but, you know, I've got to hold something back behind the payment wall, right? But I hope that was fascinating and really helpful to retailers that are dealing with this. If you don't know if you're dealing with this, reach out to your warehouse. Find out if they're receiving odd items, you know, return incoming to the fulfillment center or the return center, depending on how your fulfillment centers are set up. Other methods that have been happening is that some of these refunders have shared information recently that they know that some warehouses have policies that if they hear broken glass in a box that was returned, they'll just throw away the box and issue a refund. They're really learning to game the system. And it's very frustrating. I have to say that this is, to me, a spinoff of friendly fraud, where, you know, the people who are placing the orders are, they own the payment method but that they are manipulating the system. And I have to say that primarily those are actually what make me more upset than the 
traditional career fraudsters that are doing credit card fraud. I just there's something about liar buyers, as they say, that really bothers me. And so that's one of the reasons why I've focused a lot on this in the last year and a half, both in my speaking, in public speaking, as well as in my practice. So with that, I'm, I hope that I'm not leaving retailers too depressed, but do check in with your warehouse and find out if they're seeing anything that's suspicious and work with them to, to identify that. I think that can be the first step. Working with customer service in the warehouse is critical, as well as a few other departments to really get refund fraud under control. And one last thing I'm going to say is that when I have shared the anecdotal information that I've received from a few merchants that when they add up their refund fraud totals, the financial totals, that they are typically around three times as much as their fraud chargebacks. I consistently hear from merchants I'm talking to that that is accurate. So this problem isn't going away. If you aren't aware of it, it is persisting. You still probably have a problem. So make sure that you start looking into that, asking questions. And if the refund fraud workshop is something that you're interested in, please let me know so that I can start planning when the next one is. With that, I'm going to end this podcast for today, but we have another great interview coming up for you next Tuesday. And I look forward to speaking with you then.
thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.